Well, this morning we have the opportunity to uh, have one final guest preacher before we get into our uh, fall series and a bit more regularity with uh, Pastor Alex returning. He's back this morning, but uh, we are fortunate to have someone who's near and dear to my heart, my dear wife, Lindsay, who's going to be preaching this morning. Um, and so, babe, can I pray for you? <laughs> All right. Well, God, thank you so much for the opportunity to hear uh, one final parable from your word. It's been a wonderful series this summer, and we pray for Lindsay now that you would uh, speak in and through her, that your word would, uh, would convict and affirm uh, what we are, you know, the trajectory that we're on and, and maybe convict us of the areas in which maybe we need to change. And so God, would you move and breathe through your spirit, through your word, and through Lindsay. Now we pray. Amen. Thank you. I was going to put my tea down there, but that does not seem like a sound decision to make, so I'm going to put it down here instead. Well, good morning, everyone. It is so nice to be here with you. I was telling Justin, I've got to fix my hair around this mic, my mask, put it askew. I was telling Justin that I was so excited to be here. Um, I've been preaching at a few different churches this summer, and one of the things that I, I kind of get giddy before I go there because it's, you know, I have a young child and it can be uh, hard to get out to church when there's no children's ministry, so I kind of get just this giddy feeling when I get back to be with Sorry, when I get back to being with a community of faith. So I'm very excited to be here in person uh, with all of you. I'm very excited uh, for all of those who are watching online that, that you can gather in the spirit with us this morning. Um, I am going to start this morning with a confession. I have done a version of this sermon previously. It is an old preacher's trick. Sometimes you just go with what's worked. Um, but in all seriousness, when Alex reached out to me, oh gosh, several months ago now, and asked if I would be willing to teach on a parable, I immediately thought of this one. We're going to be talking about the old and new wineskins. And the reason that I think it came back to me is because throughout this season of uncertainty, this is something that God has been constantly speaking to me through. Even as I was going back through it this week, as I was reading over it again, as I was praying about what to share, I just felt that God constantly brings this message and this theme back into my life. And as we enter a new season, and as we live through month of who even knows anymore of a pandemic, this parable is full of a message of newness and hope. And I think that we could all use a little bit of that. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, or if you prefer looking up on your smartphone, whatever you prefer, we are going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, and we are starting in verse 14. And as I said, this is called the parable of the old and new wineskins. The parable does appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, almost in the exact same sequence of events, and almost word for word, uh, it is shared in the same way. So there is no particular reason we're looking at it in Matthew, but uh, that's where we are this morning. So Matthew 9, starting in verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a new patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. 
Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. I love hearing that in person. So there are passages of scripture, when you hear them or when you read them, they immediately just cut you to the core. The message is so clear. This parable is probably not one of those passages. It wasn't for me, at least. The passage is a little bit more obscure. The meaning is maybe not immediately apparent or necessarily applicable. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Wrestling and needing to dig deeper into scripture is a great thing. But the danger of some of the less oft-quoted parables comes when we as human readers, who are easily distracted and move on to things very quickly, when we just gloss over a passage because it doesn't immediately speak to us. And if we do that with too much scripture, we aren't going to get a full picture of what God might be trying to speak to us. And I think that would be a real shame with this parable because it is actually incredibly spiritually rich. Would we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? It's here. It is here in these three verses. That is all I read. That is only three verses. But in those three verses, two very important things happen. Jesus shares his mission. He shares why he is here on this earth. And two, he challenges believers in how they should live in light of that. So let's set the stage. The parable is given after the calling of Matthew, who is the author of this gospel. And Matthew, whose original name is Levi, is a tax collector. And Jesus just looks at this guy, who most Jews would see as the scum of the earth. I mean, Matthew is a Jew that profits off of the exploitation of the Jews. And Jesus looks at this guy who is an outcast amongst his own people, and Jesus says, you, I want you to be a disciple of mine. And the Bible says that Matthew just kind of drops everything that he's doing, and he follows after Jesus. And Matthew asks Jesus to a dinner at his house. And the company that Matthew keeps are very much like himself. The Bible says that they are tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees, who are a sect of Jewish religious leaders of the day, they see Jesus, a man who people call rabbi, teacher, a man who is gaining disciples. More and more people are coming and following after him. He sees G- they see Jesus hanging out with these people of ill repute, and they ask him very confrontationally, what are you doing eating with these people? Why are you giving sinners the time of day? And Jesus answers the Pharisees. He addresses this challenge in the verse right before where our parable starts, Matthew 9, 13. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, it says on hearing this, sorry, starting in verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. 
These are the people that Jesus wants to spend life with, to do life with. These are the people that he wants to call. Jesus is saying, these are the people that I love and that I'm going to teach and I'm going to do life with. These people that you deem outsiders, sinners. And it's really cool because if you go through Matthew chapter 8, again, the events kind of leading up to this, you see Jesus healing lepers, casting out demons, He's interacting with poor women. He's healing the servant of a Roman centurion. These people who are cast aside and reviled and unclean and considered enemies, these are the people that Jesus is doing ministry with. And now here at this dinner at Matthew's house where our passage picks up, same place, same time, right after the Pharisees challenged Jesus, we once again see Jesus being questioned. This time by disciples of John the Baptist who have, from what we understand, generally liked Jesus up until this point, but maybe they don't quite get him yet. And John's disciples come up to Jesus and they say, hey, we notice that your disciples don't fast. And we do, and the Pharisees do. In fact, the Bible says that they fast often. So what's up with that? How come you, Jesus, and your disciples don't fast? How come you don't engage in something we deem to be spiritually important for our people? It is part of pursuing holiness and righteousness. It's part of being God's chosen people. And Jesus responds with the beginning of this parable. And he says, if you are at a wedding celebrating with a bride and groom, you wouldn't fast. How many of us have been to a wedding before? Okay, let's be honest. Wedding food is one of the best parts. How much of a letdown if it would it be if you were at a wedding and you could not eat or drink anything? Weddings are a time to celebrate. You celebrate with the bride and groom. You don't fast when the guest of honor arrives. You celebrate with him. And Jesus says, you are missing the point about fasting. Fasting was and is a common practice of the Jewish faith and for many in the Christian faith as well. And fasting is about connecting your physical body with a spiritual reality or longing. And the Old Testament was actually done for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes you saw it during times of renewal when God was coming to do a new thing. And the idea is that you let everything of the old pass out of your body before you put something new in it. It was done as a way to yearn for God, to wait for God, to experience God. You know, you hold your body in a suspended state, and as your body calls out for food, what you're really learning to do is call out for God, who was the ultimate sustainer. But as time went on, particularly in the exile and the post-exile period, it became in, in more and more connected to the idea of waiting for God's Messiah to come and to rescue his people, for Israel to mourn in their current state and to wait for God's redemption. It's why Jesus mentions uh, mourning in verse 15. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that you don't have to hunger after an experience for God. The one you are waiting for, the one you are fasting and mourning for, he's right here in front of you. You don't need to mourn. You don't need to call out for rescue. The guest of honor has come. I am here. The Messiah is here. You don't fast when the one you have been waiting for is in your midst. It's not a ritual checkbox that you need to perform in order to be righteous. That's not the point of it. 
It is meant to be a symbolic spiritual experience. And you're seeing it fulfilled in your very midst. And Jesus probably could have stopped right there. All he was questioned about was fasting. And yet he doesn't. He extends the parable beyond fasting. And I believe he does this because I think he sees the perfect opportunity to make a bigger point. Because the people who are questioning fasting have missed the point about who Jesus is and what he is doing. So Jesus starts talking about repairing clothing and making wine. And he says, if you, have an, uh, if you have an old garment and you put an unwashed piece of cloth on it as a patch, what is going to happen? This is a culture that does not have polyester or a polycotton blend. They only have natural fibers. For anyone who has made this common laundry mistake, what happens when you put a natural fiber in the wash for the first time? You can, you can say it out. It shrinks. I've done it before. It shrinks, and Jesus is saying if you have an old and familiar, well-used garment that needs a patch, and you take a new piece of cloth to try to use that as a patch, when the whole thing gets washed, the patch is going to undergo a transformation, and it's going to shrink, sorry, shrink away from the already familiar pre-washed garment, and it's going to ruin both. The patch undergoes a transformation when washed for the first time that the old garment's not going to because it's already been used for so long. So the two don't work together. Then Jesus says, he extends the parable again. He says, if you have new wine, you cannot pour it into old wineskins. In the ancient world, after you pressed grapes to you know, get grape juice, you'd take that runoff grape juice and it would be purified, and then it would be poured into wineskins. They're, they're treated animal skins, usually a goat. And the idea is that when you pour them into these wineskins, the grape juice would begin to ferment. Now, fermentation produces alcohol, and it also produces gas. So what happens? Wineskins only stretch once. So if you pour new wine into an old wineskin, as that new wine undergoes this fermentation, this transformation process, as that happens, the gas produced is going to stretch the wineskin, but the old wineskin's already been stretched once before, so it can't stretch again. And what's going to happen is that the wineskin is going to burst, and the wine will run all over the floor and be ruined. And I appreciate the old adage that you don't cry over spilt milk, but I cry over spilt wine. <laughs> So if we look at this parable being spoken by Jesus when he is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and being challenged by the religious elite, Jesus is saying, I am here to save these people. The Savior you have been fasting for is here. He's right here, right now, and I am doing a new transformative work. And you are going to miss it if you are constantly looking at the way that things have been done before new people are going to be called, new transformation is happening, something new is going on here. And this new thing, it's not going to be housed in the old way of doing things. It cannot be contained inside or dictated by a religious elite. 
It is not for the right kind of people or those with insider knowledge or those who have inherited a tradition but lack the willing heart to be transformed. The Old Testament tells a beautiful story of God's people. They are called the Israelites, the Jewish people. And part of this story is the law. And when we think of the law, sometimes we think of you know, the Ten Commandments or the 613 other recorded commandments that are in the Old Testament. And that's not completely wrong per se, but there is a greater understanding of what the law is in Jewish tradition. The law is the Torah. It is the entire first five books of the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. And those books absolutely contain a lot of commandments, but they also contain the story of God's people, of God calling his people, of God making a covenant with his people, of God giving his people instructions to live by. It's a story of God setting apart a group of people to be a blessing to the nations, a group that would display God's justice and mercy and love to other people. You know, when Jesus was asked about the law, the Torah, he said it could be summed up in two sentences. It's about loving God and loving people. That's why the law was given to the people. That's why the law was shared and passed down. It was this very good thing that God gave his people so that they could have a relationship with him and be in relationship with others and that as a people, they would bless the whole earth. And yet the last words spoken in the book of Deuteronomy, it's the last book of the Torah, the law, Moses says that humans by themselves are not going to be able to keep God's law, God's commandments, because their hearts are hard. The law will only ever show them their failings because God's people need to have transformed hearts. And as you go along in the story of God's people, you see them trying sometimes so hard to keep the commandments of the law, trying to uh, bring their hearts into alignment with God, and it just doesn't work for them. They fall away. They lose themselves. They fall into legalism and self-preservation, and rather than stand apart from others as these pillars of justice and mercy, having God as their sole ruler and king, they often adopt the practices of the nations around them to be more like them. And when the prophets come along, you know, God sends messengers to his people with his words. The prophets share exactly what is going on. The commandments cannot be just kept through bodily motion and activity. It can't be just something you do or perform. The pillars of love and justice and mercy, the desire to show the nations, the love and the power of our almighty God, it has to be written on the very hearts of God's people. They need new hearts and they cannot foster these hearts by themselves. But the prophet Isaiah, he writes of a Messiah who is coming, who will lead God's people, who will give them new hearts and will show them how to love God and love others fully. He would rescue God's people he would be the fulfillment of the law, the embodiment of the law, the story of God's people, and blessing would flow through him to others. And you fast forward to this moment when Jesus is sitting at this party with these people deemed sinners, the unwanted and the cast aside of the times, and Jesus is saying, it cannot be about ritual or motions or performance. 
It cannot be about human actions leading to righteousness. It is about examining the heart behind tradition and the disciplines and the commandments, all of which are actually pointing to me, your Savior, sitting in your midst. Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. I am here and I am doing something new. Your hearts are clinging to an old understanding of the law, one that is familiar and comfortable. You have an old garment and an old wineskin and they have been used well, but I am here to do something new. I am here to do something transformative. I am here to give you a new heart where my law and my justice and my mercy are planted in the very depths of your being. And this newness that he is doing, it couldn't be forced. Couldn't be forced, uh, force a patch onto the old way. It couldn't be housed in old wineskins. Jesus is flipping power hierarchies on their heads. He's calling people who have been cast aside. It is for all the nations to come to God and experience his love. The kingdom of God is here. And Jesus is asking those who are hearing him to really examine what is what sorry, examine their familiar and comfortable practices, to be willing to look at their interpretation and application of their scriptures through a new lens, with a new heart, one that is bent towards God's love and justice and his mercy, what his heart is all about. The newness that Jesus is bringing, this new way of doing things, this new kingdom. It's not meant to be sanitized or humanized or domesticated. The present institutionalization, the reliance on a religious elite, the old interpretation of what spiritual rituals could produce could not contain the new thing that Jesus is doing. The human heart could not love God fully or others fully on its own, so Jesus wanted to bring new hearts. Jesus came to save the lost. He came to be a doctor spiritually, physically, and emotionally sick. He came to break free those who had been living and burdened by shame. The tax collector, the sinner, the prostitute, the poor, the sick, the needy, the lame, the disgraced, all of those who are far from God. Those are the people that Jesus is calling to come to him. He came to give us new hearts. Hearts that wanted to love God fully and learn to love others. And Jesus would show us the way. He would be the living embodiment of all that the law was supposed to do. Loving God and loving others. What God's people, a group that Jesus was rapidly expanding on earth, what God's people could not do themselves, Jesus would make possible. Jesus brought the new wine where you no longer needed to atone for your sins through sacrifice because he was the ultimate sacrifice. God's people didn't need human or ritualized mediators to exist between them and God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he acts as our mediator and our high priest before God. The bridegroom is here to celebrate with you. Sorry, to celebrate. The bridegroom is here to celebrate, so we need to celebrate him, and he is here to rescue us, and he is still here with us through his spirit. Jesus brought a new wine of grace, where nothing we can do can earn the love or forgiveness of God. It cannot be poured into the old wineskins of legality and legalism. And I do not know 
how the Pharisees and John's disciples responded because the Bible doesn't really tell us. But here today, listening and hearing God's words spoken, how can we respond? What transformation is Jesus working to bring in your life? What old way, what old habits, what are you being called out of? God is in the business of doing something new, of continually making things new, and that does mean leaving the old behind. It means sometimes questioning our familiarity and our comfortability with the way that we are living our life. It means maybe moving outside of our comfort zone into a new space that Jesus is calling us. New means leaving the old behind. The Apostle Paul would write that when we are in Christ, we are an entirely new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And as we enter into a new season, as we maybe see restrictions lift, perhaps there is a shift to some new kind of normal, can we shift our minds to also thinking about the newness that God wants to bring into our lives? What old way, what old sin, what old shame, what is God calling you out of to leave behind? What newness is he trying to bring into your life And let me be clear, if you are open and wanting to see God bring transformation into your life, you cannot house that in the old containers that have not been working for you. We cannot hold on to what is familiar and comfortable. The way things have been, the habits that we have formed, sorry, the bad habits that we have formed, or the things that we have hidden well in our lives. We cannot allow those to continue to find us or those to be our regular way of being. Not if we are going to surrender it all to Christ and be transformed from the inside. We cannot put the new wine of honesty at work in the old wineskin of cutting corners. We cannot become people of integrity in the old wineskins of hidden secrets and shame. We cannot put a marriage that honors God and our spouses in the old wineskin of secrets, lies, and hurtful words. We cannot pour, we cannot put the wineskin, or sorry, we cannot put God-honoring friendships in an old wineskin of gossip and slander. Jesus wants to do something incredible with the grape juice of your life. He wants to turn you into the finest Merlot. But he can't keep doing that if we keep insisting on housing things in old containers and old ways. Beyond your own life, us here as believers, as part of God's church, not just here at Courtright, but part of the collective that is the worldwide church, are we willing to ask ourselves and each other and other believers in what ways is Christ trying to transform the church As Christians, I sometimes worry that we lack a little bit of conviction when it comes to this parable. We see Jesus speaking to Jewish leaders uh, in this story, and we see them as the problem. We don't see us as the problem. You know, I've often heard Christians, you know, critique the Jews as people of ritualized religion, but Christians are free of all of that. And there are so many problems with that interpretation for so many reasons. (laughs) But... And I really don't have time to go into them all. I'm now thinking about them all, but I'm not going to go there. We're just going to go with one. We need to remember what Jesus was concerned about. It wasn't that the religious leaders practiced the law. Jesus is seen to practice aspects of the law throughout his life. It was that they didn't have the right heart. It wasn't that the law was bad. It was a gift from God. It was the leaders and the people who are questioning Jesus actually think that you can perform your way into righteousness. 
that if you live the commandments and the law, but you don't have the right heart, that somehow that doesn't matter. As human beings, I think sometimes we try to change who we are through performance without really looking inside and needing to be transformed inside. It is not that rituals or commandments are bad. It's that they can be made an idol. The beautiful spiritual practices and rituals that are supposed to point the people here at this dinner towards God became matters of personal pride and personal achievement as a way for them to judge themselves as better than other people, as a way for them to insulate themselves from the rest of the world and say, we, us, are righteous. And then there is all of them. And friends, the church is not immune from that attitude. The same bent towards legalism, elitism, performance, and selfish piety, it's there. It's there because it's in the human heart. And if it's in the human heart, it can make its way into God's church. We need the transforming, renewing work of Jesus Christ because he wants to do a new thing inside of his church as well. When the Bible says that Christ is going to make all things new, he means his, sorry, this includes the church. Thank you. One of the very cool tensions of the Christian faith is that we worship a God who in his makeup and essence does not change. And yet he is a God of constant newness, redemption, and transformation. He is a God who remains singularly perfect in his, consistent, in his consistency. And yet he's a God who is also completely unpredictable. He shows up in a burning bush, in a pillar of fire, behind a temple curtain, and in a baby born in Bethlehem. He is a God who wrestles with his creation, negotiates with his creation, and then lives among his own creation as one of his creation. He is a God that we believe is completely unchanging, and yet we see him get angry and saddened and show compassion. He is a God who reveals himself in new ways, to new people in different times and different places and different means and ways, building a revelation of himself over time and distance. He is a God that does not change and yet changes everything. May we be open to attuning our hearts to the new thing that he wants to do in our midst, the renewal and ongoing revelation that God is bringing to his church. My prayer for the church, I don't just mean this church, I mean to the worldwide church. God, God put a love for the church inside of me at a fairly young age, and I have a prayer for the church. And my prayer is that we do not fall in love with the way that we have always done things in the past, Amen. with potentially old containers. May we never fall more in love with the way that we have done things. We love Christ. May we never become too familiar, familiar or comfortable or desiring the power that the historical church has gained. May we recognize that Jesus came to invert the power that the world deemed important. May we not make idols of our traditions and our interpretations and our, and our practices. May they not be a fence that protects us and binds us, but it also keeps other people out. May we have hearts aligned with God's, listening to his calling. I believe so, so strongly that Jesus wants to do a transformative work in us, 
that God will and does make all things new, that we are constantly and continually being poured in to new wineskins, to have lives of ongoing transformation. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father God, we just, we thank you that you are a God of newness. That you are unchangeable in all that you are and that you yet constantly bring change and renewal and redemption to your world. God, we thank you that you never leave us as we are, that you are constantly working to transform us. God, may we have the courage to embrace that transformation. May we have the strength to be open to all you want to do in our lives. God, may we, as a church, as your body of believers, may we be open to hearing you in new ways. May we look for the newness that you are doing, the transformation that you are doing, and may we be part of it. God, would you break us out of what might be familiar and comfortable, but it's just not working and it is not of you. God, may we move past that into whatever newness that you are calling us into. God, we cannot fully love you. We cannot fully love others by ourselves. We need you to give us a new heart, one that is bent towards you. Oh God, would you make that heart a reality in us here? Thank you, Jesus, for doing what we could not do ourselves. We pray in his name.